from Isaiah 9. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. In the past, he humbled the, la the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy, and they rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning and will be fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, and to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may have a seat. Well, hey, good morning. Peace be with you. Happy first Sunday of Advent. Uh, uh, Advent is the traditional four-Sunday season leading up to Christmas, one of my favorite times of the year. And Advent is actually the beginning of the church calendar year. And so Happy New Year. This is the first day of the year. You made it. January 1, according to church tradition. And so Advent is one of my favorite times of the year because it's this sort of collision of two different worlds, two worlds that I think we feel on a regular basis, um, but Advent makes it even more clear and on the forefront of our minds. And, and we think of the world that is all around us, which is a world of darkness, a world of hurt, a world of brokenness and of tiredness. And then there's the world of, of God, the kingdom of God, our everlasting Father, our Lord Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit of God, this world and the dark world are colliding at once at all times, but especially in Advent, we remember that God's light came hurtling in to the darkness of our world. And Advent's a season of expectation. You can think about the centuries and centuries that Israel was waiting for the fulfillment of all these promises and the Messiah, their Lord and King. But think about the more than 400 years that existed in Israel after the end of the Old Testament and before the beginning of the New Testament. For 400 years in Israel, there are no prophets. There is no new scripture. For over 400 years, no, no dreams, no visions, no revivals, no real movement, no real voice from the Lord for over 400 years, just simply waiting. Israel waited longer between the Old Testament and the New Testament than we've been around as a nation. 400 years of waiting for the Lord's birth. And so Advent is a season of expectation, and then Christmas comes as the season of fulfillment. Christmas in the church tradition is not a day, it's 14 days. It's two full weeks. 
And if you'd been waiting for something for 400 years yourself, one day would not be enough to celebrate its fulfillment. And so the church has traditionally celebrated two Sundays and 14 days for Christmas. And so there's expectation in Advent, there's fulfillment in Christmas. And then the season after Christmas is called Epiphany, which is a season of manifesting new life. And in Epiphany, Epiphany Sunday is January 5th this year, and then the, the season of Epiphany goes all the way until Ash Wednesday, which starts the next season of Lent. In Epiphany, we're proclaiming what has happened, that our, our expectation was not in vain, that these promises have indeed been fulfilled in the birth of our Lord. And so expectation, fulfillment, and then new life. And I love the season of Advent because so much of our lives follow that same pattern, the pattern of expectation, of waiting, of wondering if our waiting is, is in vain, if God is even hearing our prayers to him. And after this long period of waiting and this great expectation, the Lord breaks through into our lives. Fulfillment finally comes, and it's so much better than we ever could have imagined. And following that, we can't help but to go and to share it, like a new parent who's just had a baby and, and just has to put it on Instagram, has to tell their friends. As soon as we experience something deeply, we have to go and share it. And so expectation, fulfillment, and then new life. Ms. Advent, I want you to consider this, this question over the next four weeks. What, what is it that you're waiting for? Where in your life has God called you to wait? Where has he put you in a posture of, of expectancy, looking forward to his, his incoming, his, his inbreaking, coming into your world? Advent simply means arrival. The arrival of the Lord, but as... As uh, Lauren said, we are looking forward to the second advent, the second coming of our Lord on this side of his resurrection. And so where has God made you to wait? And where has he put you in a posture of expectancy? Where have you perhaps been praying for something all year to the point to where you've, you've now given up the prayer? It feels like certainly it's not going to come true. This advent, what does it look like to pick that back up again? In this series, we're going to be looking at four great passages from the Old Testament, from the prophet Isaiah. And in particular, we're going to see that the birth of Christ means four things. It means a light into the darkness. That's our passage today in Isaiah 9. It also means healing for the broken in Isaiah 11. It means a way for the lost in Isaiah 35. And it means comfort for the hurting in Isaiah 40. Isaiah 40 has this beautiful line, every valley shall be raised up. And it's this vision that Isaiah gives us as life as it should be, life in the full light and presence of our Lord. And so today we're going to look at three things, the darkness, the light, and then the waiting. So let's pray and then we'll get into the story of Isaiah. Father God, as we come before you this morning at, at something of a transition, a transition in, in teaching and emphasis and as a church, but also opportunity, a time of, of perhaps awakening spiritually for us. Advent as a season follows this, this long season of ordinary time in the church tradition. And, and Lord, perhaps many of us feel this sort of spiritual dryness within ourselves. Maybe like Israel, we're just going through the motions, but our hearts have grown cold or dry, or weary. Maybe the darkness is creeping in all around us, and Lord, we need your light. 
And Son of God, we confess that we have no other hope of salvation other than you, that you left the glories of heaven to come down and to rescue us. And Holy Spirit of God, how often we're unaware of what you're doing within our own hearts and souls, what you're doing in this very church, what you're doing in this city. This Advent, would you give us eyes to see you, Holy Spirit, and see what you are doing in our midst. So Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, would you be with us this morning? Would you make your face to shine down on us and be with us in the the fullness of your presence that we might experience you? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Isaiah is a, is a book. There's one commentator that says Isaiah's book is a vision that reveals through symbols and reasoned thought a God-centered way of seeing and living. It offers everyone the true alternative to the false appearances of this world. The theme of the book is God himself. In the book of Isaiah, it's sort of the entire storyline of the Bible in one single book. It's the history of, of all mankind in one place. If you think about it, Isaiah, it sort of follows the pattern of the whole Bible. The first third of Isaiah, it actually takes up the bulk of the book. It's chapters 1 through 39. It reads like classic Old Testament. There's a a longing for God's presence. Israel is in is in a wilderness time. They're waiting for God to break through. There's, There's warnings about judgment and promises of fulfillment. And then the second third of Isaiah, about chapters 40 to 55, this reads a little bit like the Gospels. Because the prophet gives us this clear vision of who our Messiah is. The fact that he's coming, that he's a suffering servant, that he will die for our sins. And in the final third of Isaiah from, from 56 to 66, it's, it's like the, the New Testament letters in Revelation. It shows us a vision for the end times. What God is doing it at the end of all things when he brings about a new heavens and new earth, this glorious resolution to everything we've been experiencing. And Isaiah was broken up by by the church fathers into 66 chapters, perhaps to to draw us to the 66 books of the Bible. Isaiah is a a comprehensive view of God and our world. Now, Isaiah's message is, is hard at points. There's a lot of darkness. There's a lot of judgment. On almost every single page, there's warnings of coming judgment. At this time in Israel's history, this is Judah, which is supposed to be the the pure, great tribe of Israel. The other tribes of Israel have, have fallen away, and yet Judah has remained faithful to the Lord, although they're now just sort of going through the motions. This is 700 years before the coming of Christ. And so Isaiah is speaking from the Lord, speaking the word of the Lord to the people of Judah saying, if you don't turn back, judgment will face you in the same way that it's faced the rest of Israel. And in fact, God says that they will be carried into exile by the hand of the Assyrians, and then later Babylon. All of this came to be exactly as Isaiah said it would, so that thousands of Israelites would be lost, would be destroyed in these wars. Only a small remnant of people from Judah would remain. And yet it's this little remnant, this this small people of God that would be restored. They would turn back to him and then all the promises of Isaiah would be given to them and fulfilled in them. The Savior would still come through the line of Judah. When we pick up our story 
in chapter 9, actually right before it, if you've got uh, Bibles, we've got in the, the pews now in Isaiah 8, the very last verse. It says, they will look to the earth, those who, who have not turned to the Lord. It says, they will look to the earth and see only distress and darkness and fearful gloom, and they will be thrust into utter darkness. This darkness is a theme throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament, and it represents our, our unbelief or our rebellion, the judgment and the condemnation that comes when we don't turn to the Lord. This darkness is all around us, and it's even within us apart from Christ. And that's why it's such good news in our chapter as it begins, Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who are in distress. In verse 2, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. And that phrase in verse 2, the deep darkness, what Isaiah is, is doing, this is a phrase that's just original to this verse. It's nowhere else in the scriptures. And Isaiah takes two words, the Hebrew words for death and darkness, and he just shoves them together to make one word. And so literally it means death shadow. People who are walking in the shadow of death have now seen a great light. Now that's the second thing, the eternal light that is dawning and the promises of God. We look at verse 2 again, rather than focusing on the darkness, it says the people of walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness or, or the death shadow, a light has dawned. After years of waiting, centuries of waiting, finally Israel, for all their hope, all their expectancy, a light comes flooding into the darkness. Finally, there's, there's a glimmer of sunlight on, on the horizon. In the darkest of the night, a light begins to rise for them. And first, Isaiah shows us what will happen when this light rises. In verse 3, it says, You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. And so from this small remnant, there will be an increase, a multiplication of the people of God. They will rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. And then verse 4, For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them. And that phrase, Midian's defeat, if you remember this story from Judges, it's the story of Gideon when he had tens of thousands of warriors and he was going to face Israel's enemy, and God says, no, that's, that's too many people. You're already outnumbered, but that's still too many people. And so God whittles them down to thousands. And Gideon brings the army before the Lord and again says, God, God says, no, that's still too many people. And he whittles them down to a mere, uh, a few hundred so that they are completely outnumbered and there is no possible hope for victory. And then God, by his right hand, delivers Israel in a profound way that only he could do so that no glory could go around except to God. That's, that's the defeat of Midian. And so as in the day of Midian's defeat, just as a small remnant of people participated in that great war, so now their oppression is lifted. The yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor, it's all lifted from their shoulders in the day of this great light. In verse 5, every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. And this is just to say that one day war will be no more. 
at different points in Isaiah, it says that the, the swords of the soldiers will, will be used for farming. They'll be used to gather wheat because there's no need for swords anymore. One day, finally, Israel will be at rest and at peace. God's people will be increased, they'll be liberated, and they'll be vindicated. They'll be given final victory. But if you think about it, these promises to be increased, to be, to be vindicated, to be freed from oppression, they're present in almost every one of the Old Testament books. Over and over, God is promising these things to his people, that he will free them from their sins and from their oppressors, and he will lead them into the land and give them a Messiah. But what's so profound about Isaiah and why we use it so frequently in Advent and Lent and Easter It's how the Lord will do this. Isaiah gets this vision from the Lord of how God is going to fulfill all of these promises, and it's utterly mind-blowing for the Israelites. And we pick it up in verse 6. He says, For to us a child is born. To us a son is given. And so how will this great victory be won? How will decades and centuries of waiting finally be fulfilled? How will the people be freed from oppression and vindicated finally? A child is born. To us, a son is given. The gift of a child. It says the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Jesus is the light of the world. The light that comes into the darkness is not an impersonal light. It's not electricity. It's not the light of the sun. The light is the light of Christ. The light is the very presence of God in a person. In the New Testament, John says this in his first chapter, in him, in Christ, was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and truth. And so Jesus is the light of the world and this light drives out all of the darkness. I don't know if you've ever thought about the fact that in Genesis 1, God says that he creates light on the first day. He separates light from dark, and he called it day and night. That's day one, and then he creates the sun on day four. You ever notice that? Where was this light coming from for the first three days? In the sun, it's, it's a mere symbol of God's light. It's warmth, it's, it's brightness, it, it's life-giving capacity. It should just point us to the fact that this is what Christ truly is for us. There have been whole articles, like scholarly articles written about how long could our earth survive, how how long could humans survive on earth if the sun just suddenly went dark. And they look at all these factors, you know, how soon would it get too cold for life on earth? How soon would the CO2 evaporate because the plants are dying? And the answer is a couple of days. If you look at all these things, we'd survive not long enough to renew all these energy sources. Eventually, we would just be gone. And so the sun, the sun represents this source of light, this source of warmth, this source of of life, but it's not the true light. 
That's why in Revelation at the new heavens and new earth, it says there is no sun because Christ is all the light we need. There is no need for a sun in the new heavens and new earth. Jesus is the light of the world. In his light, nothing is dying. Nothing is decaying. We cannot live apart from his light in the same way we can't live apart from the sun. But if we have Christ, rather than everything decaying, everything is continually being made new. And so I'm sure you see this this great paradox that the king of the universe, the fulfillment of all these Old Testament scriptures is now coming to us and coming to us in the form of a baby boy. There's nothing smaller, more ordinary, more humble than the birth of a child, and especially in the circumstances that Jesus was born into. And this is the way God loves to operate. These are the paradoxes that are all throughout the scripture, that something so incredible, so high and mighty as as God himself, God the Son being born on earth in the form of a baby boy in the middle of the night when there wasn't any room in the inn and they, they used the stables out in the fields with the animals. One of my favorite authors, uh, Frederick Buechner, he writes this, The darkness was shattered like glass, and the glory flooded through with the light of a thousand suns. A new star blazed forth where there had never been a star before, and the air was filled with the bright wings of angels. The night sky came alive with the glittering armies of God, and a great hymn of victory rose up from them, glory to God in the highest And strange kings arrived out of the east to lay kingly gifts at the feet of this even stranger and more kingly child. What a beautiful paradox. And in the middle of the night, the light comes, but comes in such an unexpected way. If we look to Luke 2 for a moment, Luke 2 is one of my favorite chapters in all the scriptures. And I can never read it out loud without thinking of, is it Linus in the Christmas uh, Charlie Brown Christmas, who reads this story at the very end. It's a just gorgeous scene of, you know, cartoons. Verse 8, And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were terrified. Now, in this culture, shepherds were one of the lowest uh, ranking forms of, of job. These were not... These were not uh, positions that you wanted. The shepherd was, was often considered uh, less than clean. They were, they were low on the totem pole. These are the ones who are watching the sheep of, of the wealthy people, and they're out on the night watch. These are probably the worst of the worst shepherds. And so if God comes to them, if the heavens split open and angels descend with a message, that the shepherds are probably thinking it's a message of judgment. For 400 years, nothing has happened in these places. And now the the earth is torn wide and God descends and reveals himself to these shepherds. He says, do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel. And I love thinking of this as like, the angels weren't told to do this, you know, they were supposed to remain in heaven. I don't know if this is true, it's just speculation. 
But just like that, that new baby that you have to share, the angels just come crashing down. They want to join the party. They want to tell the shepherds what they want to tell them. And they say, glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. And when the angels had left them and gone back to heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let's go to Bethlehem. It's this beautiful scene of, of our Lord being born into such an unexpected place to an unexpected family at an unexpected time. And verse 7 tells us in our passage that this is the true and eternal king that we have been waiting for. It says, Of the greatness of his government and of his peace there will be no end. It can also be translated, Of the increase of his government there will be no end. Think about that. Of the increase of Christ's kingdom, there will be no end. This is an ever-expanding, ever-increasing kingdom of glory. Every single moment, it will continue to expand and grow for all eternal time. He will reign on the throne of David and over his kingdom, establishing it and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Israel's whole history is a history of poor leadership, of judges who do whatever they feel like doing, of, of kings who lead the people away from worship of God. Even their best kings were still, still pretty awful. They, they all had major sins in their life. Israel's whole history is a history of poor human leadership. And it's into this line of kings that Christ is born the true and better king, the, the leader that's been promised for all these generations. And the increase of his kingdom will last over and over, and it will expand until, as Isaiah 11 says, the earth is full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the seas. And so recognize that Jesus gets personally involved in our darkness. Jesus from heaven doesn't look down on the darkness of the earth and merely condemn it, but he, he enters it. Jesus comes to where we are, the eternal Son of God, just as much God as the Father is, with all the glories and comforts and security of heaven, looks down on the people and he comes. We said in our Questioning Christianity series that every other religion is man trying to climb their way up to God, but Christianity is God coming down to man. Our God is not a God who stands far off, who says, this is not my responsibility or this is not my job. Our God is one who enters our pain. He sees the darkness and he goes straight into it. He sees the pain and he goes right at it. He sees conflict and he goes right there. And this is the call for us too. Too often we can spend our lives not taking responsibility, trying to get around what God has, has called us to do or if he hasn't called us directly, what simply needs to be done in the kingdom. We want to stay in our lane or keep our hands clean or be perfectly comfortable to not get too involved. And yet Christ has done exactly that. I'm reminded of the lyrics of a song we've done here before. You left your home to seek out the lost. You knew the great and terrible cost.
But Jesus, your face was set. So God so often makes his people wait. For 400 years of darkness, centuries in Egypt, exiled in Babylon, years in the wilderness. But if we learn anything from all Israel's waiting, it's that the waiting is not in vain. That all God's promises will be fulfilled. They always are in Israel and they always will be in the church as well. And there's not a moment spent waiting that is a, is a waste of a moment. Every ounce of waiting that we do here on this earth is full of meaning. And the greater the waiting, the, the greater the expectation, the greater the fulfillment will be. And so we've seen the darkness and the light. But the last thing is, how do we wait? How do we, how do we wait for the light? Knowing that Christ has come and that he's coming again, but there is still so much darkness in our world. So much darkness in our own souls. How do we, how do we wait? I want to suggest three things. First of all, make room. Make room for Christ. I've been reading through Isaiah for the last two or three weeks, and it's, it's just amazing how full it is with these incredible prophecies of, of our Lord's birth. There are so many different names, I think like 60 different names for God used in Isaiah alone. But I'm also realizing how much of what was true of Israel then can still be true of us now. In chapter 29, God says to them, These people, the Israelites, they come near to me with their mouths, they honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship of me is based merely on human rules they've been taught. Therefore, once more, I will astound these people with wonder upon wonder. And so where in our lives have we honored God with our, our lips or our, our voices? Where have we, we, we mentally a, a, assented to the truth? We say we believe and yet our, our lives are, are still dark, still cold, still dry. Where do our hearts remain far off from what the Lord wants to do in us? How often have we worshipped in routines and just the old words or rested on what God has done years and years ago in our lives? Perhaps God even has us in a place of darkness, not by our own will and desire, but simply because he is doing something deep in us. He wants us to feel the weight and the expectancy. And it's a hard word the prophet Isaiah shows, as does the life of Jesus, that a lot of religious people will face judgment in the end. A lot of the Israelites still face judgment. They were just going through the motions. And you see in Jesus' life a lot of warnings to the religious people more than anyone else. You can go through the religious motions over and over and over. And that doesn't guarantee that you're walking with the Lord. But instead, those who belong to Christ are those who make room for him continually. We open up our, our hearts to him. We make space in our lives and even our schedules for him to come breaking through. We find ourselves pleading for more of his light and more of his presence, especially at the time of Advent, this, this four-week period that's, that's so definite. It's, it's, it's such a great season to renew our, our fervor for the Lord, our zeal for the Lord. 
and we wait as Israel did for God to astound the people with wonder upon wonder. And so make room for Christ. The second thing is like it, I'm just saying it a different way, cultivate a hunger for God. How do you cultivate a hunger for God this Advent? There's a lot that I've asked for in, in 2019 of the Lord that God has, has not given. A lot that I've been praying for that he has not answered. And there's a lot that God's given that I haven't prayed for. For me personally, 2019 was far more difficult than I expected. But in just the past two weeks, I felt something stirring in my soul that's been unlike the rest of the year. There's something that God's been doing in me in the last two weeks that's one of the most profound things I think I've experienced in the last few years. There's, there's a sort of an igniting or a, a flaming of this hunger for God that's been dormant for, for a while. I've loved the Lord. I've continued in, in service to Him and in prayer and in reading and all the good things. And yet in this moment now, God has opened up this hunger for Himself that I haven't felt in months, maybe even in years. And so I'm doing anything I can to like throw logs on the fire and like, you know, paper and like, you know, if I had lighter fluid, I would just douse the thing. What can I do to cultivate this tiny bit of hunger for God that I'm feeling? What the church has always done to, to create more hunger for God, it's really simple. It's prayer and fasting. And the prayer is not merely like prayer to survive, which is so often what I do. Just help me get through this day. Just remind me that you love me. Help me get by. I'm talking about the prayer that's, that's hungry for the Lord's presence like real, honest, on our knees, pleading with God for his light. A deep, transforming, even a combative prayer, praying against the darkness of our world, praying that the kingdom of light would advance at an incredible weight and break through into our lives, beginning with our own hearts. But the church has also practiced fasting for thousands of years, even before Christ, the Israelites fasted as well. And we haven't talked a lot about fasting. I don't really fast that often. And I say that it's because I'm a cyclist and I need like 6,000 calories a day. But I also just don't like fasting, like at all. Now, fasting's not just from food, although fasting for 24 or 48 hours is a great way to be reminded of, of our hunger, right? Every time you feel that hunger for food, to recognize that we need God so much more than we need food and to let that hunger remind us of his spirit and his presence and to lead us back into prayer and to say, food is just a mere substitute for what we truly need, which is the bread of life. This Advent, you might also consider fasting from something that's a good thing, but it's become some kind of substitute in your life. A substitute for energy or for comfort or for peace. Maybe you fast from, from caffeine or sugar or alcohol or social media or, or Netflix. None of these things are, are bad in themselves. But maybe there's something you've been turning to instead of turning to the Lord with, without even realizing it. And as it's taken away and you, you sense that, that, that urge, this, this sort of minor addiction that we, we attach to these things, God will use that to call us back and to cultivate, to, to throw some new sticks on the fire of our hunger for him. I have the same sense in my prayers for Trinity, this this year, I think, has been harder than many of us expected that it would be. We've had 
key members and leaders that have moved away. We've had challenges in many of our families. And yet as we look ahead in, in this moment, but certainly looking ahead, I've never been, been more excited or more confident of what God is doing now and what he's promised to do in and through us. And so in the same way, I'm trying to cultivate this hunger for God in my own life. I'm trying to cultivate this hunger in all of us. That together, God might have us right on the brink or right on the threshold of an incredible season of life and light and growth. I think we so desperately need a fresh work of God here. Now we'll be, I'll share more on that in the coming weeks and months. But the last thing, so make room for Christ, cultivate a hunger for God, and then expect the unexpected. In verse 1, it's so easy to miss of our passage. It says, In the past he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the future he will honor Galilee of the nations. And Galilee, of course, is the place where Jesus was born. and He wasn't born there, but he was raised there, and he spent most of his life, nearly all of his ministry, in Galilee. And it was called Galilee of the nations or Galilee of the Gentiles because it, it wasn't really like pure Israel. It was north of the rest of the kingdom. Samaria was in between. There were Gentiles there just as much as Jews. And so Galilee was kind of like this afterthought in the kingdom of Judah. You definitely didn't want to be from Galilee. It's kind of like southwest Missouri. Like it's technically part of the state. But I don't know about you. I don't count it when I'm thinking about Missouri. And so when the disciples say, is there anything good that can come from Nazareth? This is what they have in mind. There's no way our Savior would come from the one province that we like the least. There's no way Galilee of the Gentiles will be the place of our Lord. And yet this is what God loves to do. God loves to do the unexpected. Where we think God will show up, he doesn't. The one place we, we, think, we don't even think to look for him, that's where he comes. Again, there's a great quote from, from Frederick Buechner. He says, those who believe in God can never be sure of him again. Once they've seen him in a stable, they can never be sure where he will appear or to what lengths he will go or to what ludicrous depths of self-humiliation he will descend in his wild pursuit of man. If holiness and the awful power and majesty of God were present in this least auspicious of all events, the birth of a peasant's child, then there is no place or time so lowly and earthbound, but that holiness can be present there too. If God can show up here, he can show up anywhere. And God loves to break into these dark and these broken and messy places in our lives. We often think, we might be tempted to think we have to clean up the messes, we have to clean up the darkness so that God can use us or God can work in us. And the opposite is true. Expect the unexpected. It's into the conflict-filled marriage. It's into the broken friendship into the, the struggle and disappointment of work, into the, the long nights of parenting. This is where God comes. This is where God reveals himself most fully. He doesn't avoid the mess. He actually seems to prefer the mess. He goes right to where the biggest mess is, and that's where he shines his light. 
And so if Jesus can show up here to the wrong family, in the wrong place, at the wrong time, if he can show up in the, in the worst of all possible circumstances for the birth of a child, then he can show up anywhere. Let's pray.